Hello, friends. Welcome to the Adventures in Wellbeing podcast. My name is Damien Japaro. I'm the co-founder of Aroha Wellness Retreats here in the South Island of New Zealand. And this is a place where we refine and define the art of living exceptionally well. We'll be interviewing sought-after minds in movement, consciousness, nutrition, impact, and any topic that allows our human family to thrive. We don't like chatting about the mundane, so if you enjoy deeper conversations and you're willing to tiptoe at the edge of comfort, you've found the right place to hang out. Let's do this. All right, beautiful friends, welcome back. I've got a really interesting story to share with you. Today, my wife and I were doing a workout here at home. And as part of the finale of this class, there was a five-minute wall sit as kind of the, the killer exercise to finish us off. Now, if you've never done a wall sit before, basically you take your back up against the wall, you bend your legs as though you were sitting in a chair, but there's no chair. So the strength of your thighs has to carry you for the five minutes. Now, a minute is a long time when doing a wall sit. This was a five-minute wall sit. And here's what conspired. We sat down and we began. And I had a thought about how long I'd be able to do this. And at one point, I think I said out loud, oh, I'm going to go until about 40% and then I'm just going to have to take a break. And I did. Strangely enough, I made it to 40%. And at that point, I felt like I had no choice but to take a break. The interesting part of the story is what happened with Anna. Something clicked, something switched. I noticed that it was happening. She just got real still and steady and wasn't speaking. Long story short, she held the wall sit for the entire five minutes. Not even the instructor, you know, who we were following was even close to holding it for the five minutes. And I probably took six breaks during the course of the five minutes. So it was kind of one of these Herculean sort of events where she did something really miraculous. And I, of course, congratulated her and was in awe and laying in a puddle of sweat. And we began to decompress a little bit on what had happened. And what she said was that essentially in her mind, she is seeing this coming year as being really challenging with all the COVID restrictions coming here in New Zealand. And she decided that if she could do this five minutes, then she could do anything. And she just quietly went about committing and knowing that she was going to complete the five minutes. And she did. Now, you and I hear stories like this occasionally. We also achieve feats like this ourselves, sometimes fairly dramatic. In this case, sometimes even more dramatic. You know, we hear stories of people achieving superhuman feats. But if you have ever in your mind decided that you were going to forgive or decided that you were going to love someone in spite of something, or if you've ever 
chosen compassion or generosity or kindness when perhaps you weren't really feeling that. If you've ever become aware of yourself enough during an argument or maybe become aware of your anxiety enough and then decided to do something radically different in relationship to that moment, then you were playing in this realm that Anna was playing in, which is where the mystics have long pointed us as a source of immense and immeasurable power. Because we can't always change the world around us, right? We can't make a virus go away. We can't make the world agree about how to deal with the virus. We can't do much outside of us, really, is the truth of it. And yet we do have this ultimate power within us to become self-aware, to notice what's going on, to choose a different path, to to know that we're going to make it, that we will get through, that we will you know, resolve the situation, etc. These internal moments, these relationship-making moments where we are choosing to shift our relationship with the present moment in some way are so close and so common that they're often overlooked. And every once in a while, that very skill set is employed in such a way that everyone around you goes, wow, that was impressive. And so what if we could harness that? What if you and I, with more regularity, with more awareness, could begin to notice the moments of the most challenging for us? What if those moments of challenge could be seen as possibility, almost as though the most scary of things, the most annoying of things, the the bits of our lives that we wish would almost go away, were actually being sent as messengers in our lives, giving us an opportunity to learn this skill of shifting. What if we could harness the shortest path to relax at will? And what if that relaxation was the portal to a different way of being that mystics have been pointing us towards for eons? Joining us on this episode is Scott Schwenk. If you've ever been curious about your personal potential to shift, Scott will intrigue you. I was hooked the very first time I practiced with him. He has a unique ability to skillfully and playfully draw us into these practices to make them relevant, to allow them to be felt. I think you will find him a powerful speaker, an incredible breathwork teacher, a meditation facilitator. And Scott has a unique mix of training from leadership development to Kashmiri Tantra You guys are really in for a treat here. If you happen to be a teacher or educator or facilitator and you'd like to study more with Scott, he's generously offered us 
uh, discount on his newest program. So hang out at the end for more details. For now, let's sit, let's listen, and let's even meditate with Scott Schwenk. Scott Schwenk, welcome to the Adventures in Wellbeing podcast. Wanted to start us off today with a little bit of a definition that helps to kind of frame our chat. So breath work and meditation and the relationship to the two, I guess my experience is that sometimes I do breath work that feels intentionally meditative. And sometimes I'm doing breath work, kind of the more ecstatic versions of breath work. And I notice that the intention or the focus is not necessarily spoken to. What's the difference? So many nuances depending on a bunch of factors. Uh, Who is the practitioner, the person wanting to do the practice for some reason and why? And what is their development up until that moment? The person who's facilitating, same. And then any other people in the space. So to my understanding in education, there's well over 500 types of pranayamas or ways of organizing breath to shape and direct energy. Some are heating, some are cooling, some are quite explosive. Um, Some are to be practiced once in a while for a particular purpose. Some can be practiced every day, like alternate nostril breathing, Nadi Shodhana, or just skillful, you know, deep breathing through the nose and deep breathing, not meaning having to fill the lungs to their ultimate capacity, but breathing using the diaphragm only to draw breath down and breathing slowly. The the research is suggesting like an, a great way to breathe is five and a half breaths a minute. If I want to move into a more contemplative uh, awareness in my nervous system and in my mind to lower that down to three or two breaths a minute. Mm-hmm. So slower drops us in. Yeah. And particularly the exhales, the longer and thinner I make my exhales, the more the mind stream slows down. And then things like, you know, when you're talking about contemplative practice, for if I want to actually contemplate something I want to understand more about than that I already know or have read or heard, then I need to bring my awareness into a, a state where that's available. It's not just extrapolating or clever thinking. And the best way for me to do that is to slow my breath down. If I've had a particularly busy day, I'll slow it down until I notice and can really relax into the gap between the breaths that opens more spaciousness. And then I can notice more easily. There's a space between any two thoughts and I can relax into that, which is allowing me the space to consider something without requiring words about it, to contemplate it, to experience more of a person you're right in front of me right now. So to experience more of you without a filter the filter of my prior experiences, the filter of my conditioning without becoming silly, right? Obviously I know, you know, you're currently in what presents as a cis male gendered body. You, your hair is about yay long. Um, You're about certain amount of height and weight and you need water and food at a certain intervals. Like I'm not going to forget those things simply because I'm considering you exploring you, listening to you as if I'm in discovery. So we kind of, drove off the cliff there of from breath to like a free fall into consciousness. (laughs) 
I love it. I love it. I kind of like, as you were speaking through that, I was craving a direct experience. Do you think we could, imagining that maybe somebody is tuning in here and may have had a bit of a stressful day and could use a bit of um, relief just to drop in, do you think we could taste an experience? Yeah, let's do that. Let's do that. So if you're not driving, sit in a way that helps you to feel really good about yourself. Let your spine be long without strain. If you're comfortable, gently close your eyes. And just start to notice the experience, the physical experience of the breath coming in deep and going out long, ideally through your nose if it's open. And just feel that texture at the tip of your nose. And begin to imagine there's a feather at the end of your nose and you're slowing your breath down so as to not push the feather away with your exhales. And let the in-breath come in a little deeper and let the out-breath progressively go out a little longer, having the feeling that you can actually exhale the energy of thinking as it arises without having to engage with individual thoughts and that you can gently sweep down from the top of the head down out the soles of the feet into the earth with the exhales, exhaling any levels or layers of tension you might find along the way. You can freshly bring a portion of your attention to the soles of your feet with your imagination, like you're opening fists with your mind, consistently, continuously soften the soles of your feet, softening the skin, tendons and connective tissue and the muscles all the way to the bone. And if your mind wanders, just keep gently bringing it back to feeling the texture of your breath, touching your body and softening the soles of the feet infinitely. And in the same way that you're softening the soles of your feet, do the very same thing with the palms of your hands, wherever they may be in space, soles and palms, softening, 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 letting go, letting go. Breath is flowing like water, easy, effortless, long, You allow the next inhale to gently lift your awareness to the region of your physical head where you're softening all four corners of your eyes, the inside as well as the outside corners. Melting like butter on a hot day. While softening and melting the entire region inside and around your ears. Letting go. Letting go. Letting go. Softening the tongue as it rests deeply in the floor of your mouth. While you're softening and melting all the little muscles throughout the perineum, pelvic floor, groin region, sphincter, PC muscle. Softening. 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 On the next inhalation, you feel your awareness is expanding a bit wider than your physical body and playfully softening all six points now at the same time, 
noticing the spaciousness that it seems to open in the body and awareness as you soften soles, palms, corners of the eyes, region of the ears, tongue, and pelvic floor brain region. Let yourself freshly notice, be in discovery of this delicate pause at the end of each exhale. And just see about extending it a few moments. If you strain, shorten it again. Just relaxing into this sweet pause at the end of each exhale, like you're sinking into a welcoming hot bath at the end of a hard day's work well done. To go deeper, just continue softening those six points, soles, palms, eyes, ears, tongue, pelvic floor. Feel the texture of the breath without describing it to yourself. Now allow your awareness to gather. Let go of the pause at the end of the exhale. Allow your awareness to gather about three finger widths inside the center of your chest, home of what we call the cave of the heart. The inhales are still able to be felt physically here, orienting your awareness. This quite alive region in the center of being. You begin to detect freshly a pulsation here. That's not your heartbeat. A pulsation. that can feel like breath and is energy. Subtle and firm. The more you are receptive to this pulsation in this region, three finger widths inside the center of the chest, there's a feeling of a tenderness that you choose to allow. It's a feeling of home, safe, a wellspring, perhaps gentle at first, of love arising from within, independent of any external stimulus or trigger.
gently in this region, silently within. Drop the sound of the syllable like you're dropping a pebble into a still pond occasionally. Love. 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 Home, safe, love. Now let go of that practice and just be there. Sensing how your body currently feels, how your breath currently feels. Is your mind quieter? ever so gently beginning to deepen your breath. Perhaps wiggling your fingers and toes. And only if and when you're inclined, you can gently open your eyes as we move forward. And if you're inclined to stay within as we carry on dialoguing, please do. Wow. That was certainly what my morning needed. <laughs> Thank you. I think we all can benefit. I know I do from a morning practice mm. that sets the tone for how I want to feel that day rather than just let the day happen to me. Mm. Mm. Wow. That was delicious. I have a feeling people are going to be playing the beginning of this podcast a lot. <laughs> Question. I like, so when I have an experience like that, it feels universal. It feels like any culture, any place, any time would really benefit from that sort of practice. Have you found that there are edges to where these benefits practice? Like is breath work for everyone? Breath work is because without breathing, the body's a corpse. However, what type of breathing is not for everyone? So you have experienced uh, a breathing technique that I've called ecstatic breath work. I've called it that for a number of years. It's a three-part breath through the mouth, only through the mouth, rhythmic, set to evocative music. That's not for everyone all the time. We're not going to want to breathe like that all day long. It's, it's actually not healthy to breathe through the mouth all day long. But for specific periods of time, for a specific reason, that kind of breathing can be absolutely transformational. I've had people in one session set up from one breathwork session 
go, oh my goodness, that was like 20 to 30 years of therapy in one session. I've talked about this thing in my life for years and I actually feel like it, it left my body. That's exactly right. You know, the Levine calls it in his work, somatic experiencing, you know, we need to use the breath to feel what we haven't felt every moment. The body's it's receiving data through the senses and from our own perspective, our mind, how we're making meaning of a moment, but we don't always digest the experience in the nervous system as it's happening. Most of us have been on a delay. So this burgeoning understanding uh, that's growing right now about trauma, we're becoming a beginning to become a more trauma informed society. This recognition this compassion for the fact that nobody wakes up in the morning wanting to be an asshole. And if they are, it's trauma, it's undigested trauma that there's one consciousness wearing all these bodies simultaneously, forgetting itself as an individual, Damien, Scott, Kim Jong-un, Vladimir Putin, Joe Biden, whoever. Yet we're all fingers on one hand, but we forget that it's not our direct experience until we've had enough expansion of awareness and digesting prior trauma, tension in the nervous system to be able to see reality as it is. So back to your comment, it is universal. Love is universal. When I really look at my experience, I can profoundly feel love for you right now. And we've not really to our recollection figured out when and if we've even spent time in the same room yet. The love that's here is as strong as it is for my parents or anyone I've loved the most, but it's not for a reason. And when I look at the love, it doesn't belong to me. It's just something I'm being receptive to in the moment that seems as far as I trace it out, it's mm. everywhere in every particle throughout the cosmos. Yeah. And, and it's uh, allowed basically like in your practice, there was that inner kind of, we calmed, we relaxed and allowed, and it was able to come forward. So clearly and potently. Yes. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So we don't have to push so hard for the things that matter most in life. You know, what matters most in life is not my bank balance or who I'm dating or having sex with or what I'm buying at the grocery store. Those are all to get to a particular experience. When my body is healthy and coherent, when my relationships are healthy and coherent, what does that bring me to? Me personally, it brings me to love, contentment, which is a pretty high state contentment, joy without reasons. So what if I actually started practicing the joy, the love and the contentment now and let that attract correlate circumstances? Yeah. What do you notice in terms of trauma release, um, particularly with the ecstatic form of breath work? It seems like there's this slightly otherworldly release that can tend to happen. It doesn't always happen, actually. But why, why is that particular form of breath work doing that versus say a more focused, more common or traditional form of breath work. What is it about ecstatic breath work that does that? Because it, it shortcuts us hanging out in the, the ordinary thinking mind sooner. If we, if, if you do it, if I do enough of the breath, I don't have these long pauses. We're talking right now for the listener about the three part breath through the mouth. <gasps> done laying down, it builds a tremendous energy in the body. People usually feel tingling and vibrating or pulsations of energy pretty quickly. And the ordinary thinking mind quiets down. 
So it's a shift. It's a shift from the sympathetic nervous system to the parasympathetic nervous system in a body that can handle it. For people who have an over-engaged trauma response, it could actually not be helpful. It could push them into a panic attack. This is why be facilitated by somebody that's really well-trained and ideally is trauma-informed. So why does it work? Why is it psychoactive is what you're asking me. There's a theory that seems true, and I'm not a clinical researcher, so I can't say a lot about it other than the research I have read about open mouth breath, that there's endogenous DMT in the body, natively occurring DMT. DMT is this chemical that's often referred to as the spirit molecule that is secreted, they think, by the pituitary gland at birth, death, and in some forms of intensity, great intensity, and that certain forms of breath work can activate this DMT faster than it gets metabolized that puts us into a visionary experience. So those of us who have worked safely with certain forms of psychedelics, and I've worked with DMT that I've been guided to take with a facilitator, it was the same energy opening up that opens up in my body through the breath work, only just more intense. It was the same pathways, same texture, just heightened. But on an ordinary level or or an ordinary way of looking at it, breath shifts the nervous system and the nervous system is determining how I'm thinking and how much I'm thinking. Do you think these plant medicines and and psychedelic experience and I mean, because we're, we're in the realm of non-ordinary states. And if we kind of slice and dice a little bit there, what do you think the role is there? Do you find them to be helpful in the right um, circumstance? Or, you know, my mom, I remember when I was telling her about some of my explorations uh, in my younger years, uh, she said, you know, Damien, they're, they're, I'm glad you're having these experiences. They sound amazing. And, you know, you can get there in other ways. You know, she had obviously at the time done a lot more meditation than I had, and she was kind of pointing the way. How do you find the use of plant medicine and, and psychedelics as a tool? I find that you said it. Mm-hmm. Right time and place, mm-hmm. set and setting are really important. If somebody's got a very, what the English call a Moorish per- personality, more, 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 then something is very powerful and helpful and healing as a psychedelic journey can be. And there's plenty of clinical research about that fact. It could also just be an addictive pattern. And one not actually doing what your mom suggested, which is learning to do it with adjusting breath, dissolving tension and entering what we call meditation. Instead, like just going from journey to journey, to journey, to journey, you know, substance to substance to substance. And that's a codependency with an object, the same way we can get codependent with a person. Like, oh, you know, let's say you and I were in a relationship, Damien, an intimate relationship. We're like, well, I can't live without you. Yeah, attachment. How's that any different? Like, I'm not free, nor are you, if I'm that attached to you. Totally. It's a codependent relationship. So I think that psychedelics, just like food, can be misused. Food is good. We don't want any, you know, we don't want to not eat. ever again fasting a little while is fine but like we need food but what are we eating what's the quality of it am i chewing my food 
Am I metabolizing the nutrients? Do I need to take enzymes or probiotics? What time of day am I eating? Well, breath is the same. What time of day am I doing the breathing technique? Is that the best time of day for that technique? Cooling techniques of breathing are much better before bed than something really rousing and, and activating. We live at a time when techniques that were really esoteric and hidden for good reason, for safety's sake, are just anybody can Google them online and just start doing them. And people can purchase ayahuasca on the dark web if they know what they're doing. I have no idea how to even find the dark web. I'm not interested. But these things are now out in, in, the, in the public, easy to get a hold of, whether the quality is there or not. So caveat emptor, buyer beware, discernment, you know. In, in my perfect world, people would have done, like really learned how to enter meditation and done significant trauma work with a great somatically based therapist before doing a psychedelic journey. Totally. And there have been plenty of folks that I know about personally who hadn't done any of that and that it turned out it worked out okay. They went on a high dose mushroom journey perhaps or something, had a complete transformation, did change their lifestyle and grew well. But I've also had people come to see me who were not properly integrated after an ayahuasca journey who were having night terrors and panic attacks and I had to help them rewire their nervous system. Mm -hmm. So anything can be used for anything. What's the state I'm in when I'm having sex, taking the substance, doing the breath work? What's the intention? Is my breath, my mind and my body aligned with my intention or am I just grasping at a technique? Hmm. Such a disservice the way we currently in our cultures kind of lump everything together as drugs and push it one way or the other. And then there's no guidance to the ones that are really powerful. It feels like some of the work that maps are doing and, and some of the research that's coming out seems to be moving society to a better, better balance. And there are storylines that are allegorical that point at this schism that happened about 600 BC when a group that are referred to as the Deuteronomists emerged around Europe, particularly. And prior to that time, this story that runs through Kabbalah um, and other places prior to the Bible, the tree of life was a tree of nourishment and knowledge, equal access, equal opportunity to all beings. Then the storyline was changed. And we know in advertising, whoever controls the narrative, politics too, controls the people. If you can push mm -hmm. a believable narrative. So energy was understood to be already everywhere. It could be called magic, could be called suchness, could be called isness, spirit. doesn't matter what it's called, but it's everywhere. It's everywhere. All the power that could ever be in a, any holy temple, or if the Pope was an enlightened being or Dalai Lama, is that same power is everywhere or nowhere. Amen. Mm -hmm. The twisting of the storyline turned this source of nourishment into something to stay away from or require a middleman, middlewoman to approach. So we live at this time, you know, the golden compass, the, the In His Dark Materials trilogy that um, Philip Pullman wrote and HBO has done two seasons of. In the first book, there's this separating children, this machine to separate kids from their daemon, often pronounced demon, but daemon the source of inspiration. 
the church systematically went through Europe and tried to destroy as many of these monolithic establishments, these huge stone circles and whatnot that have been measured by scientists, actually clinically measured, that, that some of them actually charge up like a battery as the sun rises and discharge as the sun goes down and, and actually exude measurable strong energy currents. They try to destroy as many as possible. In fact, many of the great cathedrals of Catholicism are built on top of ancient, powerful goddess sites. The altar is directly on top of the center of the center of those energy centers. There's a book that goes into a lot of this called The Merchants of Light. It's a thick book, not an easy read, by a um, college professor in the UC system. Beautiful. So you're a non-dualist tantra, and I would imagine... There's a bit more in there. How does your how does tradition serve you? How does yeah. how does your education serve you, and how does it show up in your teachings and what people experience today? It serves me more now than ever because I hold it lightly. I don't feel subservient to a tradition. Traditions are like training wheels. Once you can balance, you don't need the tradition. When we're first entering a tradition, if we're newer to uh, practice, you say. So the first thing we learn in any tradition is how to behave correctly. So we're learning how to get along with others. What are the rules of the, of the group? How do we support that? How do we contribute? Uh, Ideally, if it goes well, we start to actually then be fit for certain practices, beginner practices. And the beginner practices are mind training practices in any tradition worth its salt, learning how to focus without tension. And that's really important because enlightened awareness is already everywhere. What's moving around all the time is human attention, but wakefulness is already everywhere. Love is already everywhere. So if I'm not experiencing, it's my ability to be receptive and focus. So a useful tradition does focus training, whether that's doing, you know, a thousand and eight repetitions of a mantra using beads and keeping track, or whether that's something like Zen and counting breaths up to a hundred and not losing track. It's like the old movie Karate Kid, wax on, wax off. This kid's waxing and washing this guy's cars, thinking he's just doing cheap labor, only to find out that the movements he's shown to use to wax and wash the cars are getting ingrained in his muscle memory that he can actually protect himself in a fight with those very same movements, focus, mind training, and releasing the baggage and tension of the past to see reality as it is, to see love as it is. Love arises within. It's not given or taken. Same with stillness, same with enlightened awareness. They're they're already here. They're expressions of our true nature. When we get established fundamentally, and that becomes a baseline awareness in ordinary moments that we're working from, not just visiting when we're doing a practice, the tradition starts to be less relevant. Now, I'm a devotional guy, so I will still wave a, a lit candle in front of images of teachers in my lineage. Partially because it feels good to me, not because I'm, I'm superstitious. It's a way of aligning my attention with deeper wakefulness and deeper love. But I'm, I don't feel like there's do's and do nots that I'm going to end up in some sort of hellfire and brimstone if I mess up. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. We were kind of touching on the beginning of practice and then, you know, your experience of things. Give me a little bit of a sense of what an appropriate point of practice or a start for somebody who's listening who says, wow, this is already feeling and sounding really good. How do I get started? And what does my day look like? And what are those initial practices like? And then I'd like to touch on maybe how you engage in these practices in a typical day these days. I'd say keep it really simple. 
because simple is something that, that most of us are willing to repeat. If it's too complex and too costs too much time in the beginning, I may do it once or twice and then not do it and then give myself a hard time about it, which is just adding more tension and obscuring my view. So start simple. If you're not already doing a daily practice, then maybe start with five minutes in the morning. Alarm goes off. If you need to use the restroom, fine, go use the restroom and come sit on the edge of your bed. Elongate the, elongate the spine. Feel the breath coming in deeply and going out long and feel gratefulness for that you don't need a machine to breathe. And then see what else can I feel grateful? It can be very simple. I often start with how good my bed feels against my body mm-hmm. and just sink into that positive feeling. And then what else can I appreciate authentically right now? That's simple. And what I'm looking for is not getting caught up in object consciousness, things to appreciate, but to notice the feeling of appreciation and gratefulness. And then I can inhale into it and intensify it with practice. And simultaneously ramp up the willingness and the desire to use the day and everything that arises in it to grow. And then have some walking around practice for the rest of the day. So perhaps it's every time I come to a stop sign or a stoplight, if I'm somebody who's using a car currently, I take a deep breath and soften the six points like we did in that meditation. Or do a body scan and just exhale tension. Or we turn on this app. I don't. I didn't make it. It's 99 cents in the app store called Mindfulness Bell. You can set it at random. And you can choose, if you do the upgrade, you can choose what tone of bell you want to hear. I've used it for years. And then when it goes off, I take a deep breath, let go of tension, notice what I was giving attention to before the bell, and move on. Those little touches, those little moments, build a transformation in the nervous system. Out of fight, flight, freeze and into flow, awareness, rest, digest, reflect. So there's this kind of training of essentially letting go of the cultured mind that whatever your attention is on, prioritizing this presence and relaxation. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense and certainly feels really good to me every time I do it. And then I notice sometimes, especially when I'm sharing some of these ideas, that this kind of letting go is perceived as a like, are you saying this doesn't matter? Or are you like, like the ego seems to really want to hold on to that stuff, like, you know, in a death spiral of kind of like veracity. Um, And, and I also noticed that it almost seems to come up for people a little bit like a spiritual sidestepping, like when you approach some of these things, and when you start to look at your thoughts, and you look at your belief and beliefs and inquire, and where what is that resistance about? And And do you have any suggestions for people? It's just simply undigested tension in the nervous system, which is neither good nor bad. It's just a fact. We all had a growing up experience. And from my chair, it looks to me like most of what's called the spiritual path is actually an attempt to heal our childhood experience. Not yet about waking up to the nature of reality, but actually healing the tension left over from our childhood experience. Things are so much more simple than I allowed them to be when I was a kid or understood that they could be. Even in my 20s and 30s, and here I am at 49, I'm still a kid in certain regards. I still have a lot of growing and maturing I get to do and discovery. But for me, when I need to clear my head and get clear about what's real, I get out in nature away from any human 
edifices and objects and just hang out for long enough to feel the reality as it is. Cities are constructed. There was a time before they existed. Governments are constructed. There was a time before they existed. Religions and traditions are constructed. There was a time before they were. What is always true, with or without words to describe it, universally? And what that is can't be spoken, but it can be felt and oriented from progressively. Our egos as adults continues to grow if we have the right input. Our ego development is the lens that we're looking at a moment through. Somebody could have profound experiences in meditation and still be very young in their growing up development. So a fundamentalist could be fundamentalist about food. You know, I've met many people who get very vegangelical and violent, actually, energetically. I've met my own father's a born again Christian. He's a fundamentalist, evangelical Christian. He can get very upset when his perspectives are challenged. Later stage adult ego development is a stage you could call pluralism. A pluralist is somebody who can see, wow, there's multiple pathways up the same mountain and one is not better than another. A much later stage development that I've been pointing at in in the last few minutes is called construct aware. It's not just I'm intellectually aware that all religions, governments, monetary systems are constructed, made up, and there was a time before there were. It's actually how I move through my moments. I'm less caught if I'm construct aware by the shoulds and should nots of the prevailing religion or the shoulds and should nots of the prevailing governmental regime. It no longer hems me in, contracts me, you know, or gender roles, you know, those are constructed. So as my adult ego expands, my perspective expands. I'm able to see more and more perspectives on any moment. So when the fundamentalist has an experience of profound profundity in what we could call like a quiet moment, they may believe, oh, that was Allah or Jesus or some interaction with the, uh, the unnameable if I'm Jewish. A pluralist might be like, oh, that must be the residual from microdosing my mushrooms. Somebody who's construct aware goes, wow, that came right out of the void. That's the void. That's the emptiness, the luminous, luminous emptiness. Somebody who's at a much later stage, universal, it's like, that's the one. Mm. Sharing one of its cosmic giggles, and I'm just being receptive to it. So the same moment of feeling perhaps a vision of light in a moment of quietness interpreted entirely differently based on my ego development. And held trauma keeps us from expanding into a wider perspective. So working with breath and awareness and a great facilitator who's a little further down the road to release those held tensions of trauma will bring us to greater wakefulness naturally without having to sign up for somebody's religion or plant medicine retreat. So if we do any of those things, ideally it's only because it's actually helpful, not because we're looking to belong to a group to keep us safe forever and swallow whole whatever they say. 
but because it, it works for now. And then if it stops being useful, we can put it down and see what's now useful to work with. Breath is useful at all stages of development. You know, if there was one breath I could have you guys who are listening take away, it's just simply inhale deeply into wherever you feel tension in the body and just gently let go on the exhales. Get really familiar with that for the rest of your life. You will grow and attract everything you need. You won't have to worry about finding the right teacher. Mm, absolutely. You touched on a couple things there that I'd like to um, just explore a little bit more. Um, one of them was religion. And um, I, I guess it seems that a lot of these teachings have come through religious structures in one way, shape or form and, you know, veiled in one way, shape or form. Um, so what, what do you see as the, the role of religion these days? The word is actually beautiful in its origin. Religio, re, to reconnect. It's actually very close to the, to the Sanskrit word yoga. What am I yoked to or united with? What is my attention fused with? Is it fused with the outgoing temporary world? You know, all bodies are temporary. All animals are temporary. Trees are temporary. Am I attaching my happiness to things that are always changing? Or to that which is eternal and unchanging and whole and complete already within? Religion is meant to, when it's going well, draw my awareness and attach it back to wholeness, the original wholeness. You know, when Jesus is said to have said, I and the Father are one, it's not just him, not some some particular person, all of us. Mm. Mm. Out of what, if, if there was a creator being, yeah, out of, and there was nothing before this, this universe, out of what would such a being create its own self? So how could anything that it created be less than or more than its own self? So what falls apart, if we really are feeling into this right now, is that the devil and Jesus are not different. They're separate ends of one spectrum of energy, just like hot and cold. And they're all made out of the same substance. The first sutra in, in my tradition of one of my favorite um, tantric scriptures, the Pratyabhignyavadayam, I know it's a big word. It means the heart of the teachings on recognizing the great self within in the first sutra, Chittahi Swatantra Vishvasidhihitu, Chittahi Swatantra Vishvasidhihitu, one consciousness, one energy, has manifested all of these forms temporarily without losing any of her original power. She's projecting it like a movie onto a screen. She is the actors, the script, the movie projector, and the audience, and she is you whether you're recognizing it or not. Hmm. And this doesn't have to be something, you know, you don't have to take my word for it with the practices you can find out for yourself, which is the best. You don't have to just believe something that beliefs are how wars get started. Hmm. We get to experience both ends of that spectrum. Don't we, at least to some degree or another, both the kind of the heaven and hell or the, the dark and the light all day, all day, you know, Damien and I are looking at each other on the camera. Y'all are listening to us. But if I think he's looking, you're looking at me in a funny way, one, that's a perspective I'm taking that's limited. And then if I react to that and I think, oh, he doesn't like me, I'm going down my own hell road right then and there. Mm. Totally. So one of the tantric sayings is that by which we fall is that by which we rise. 
And you could easily see that that's language. If I believe the thoughts in my head and they're um, negative, I'm going to have a contracted experience. If I repeat an empowered mantra, a word or a syllable that's charged with consciousness, and if I repeat it with non-grasping focus and love, it expands my state. So language can either bind me and bring me into hell or liberate me, depending on how I use it. Wow. Incredible. The other piece I wanted to touch on from your your prior comments was play. You kind of touched on this like delight and childishness and in your practices and in your teachings, you invite us into into a play internally. How does that show up for you in your teachings and what's the value there? Well, first, let's maybe give a loose definition to play so we know what we're talking about. So play is for any age and wherever we're, we're suffering, we're not playing. We can bring play to anything. And play doesn't mean dismissing somebody's pain. Play doesn't mean spiritual bypassing or suppressing or avoiding. Play is giving and receiving with no attachment to an outcome freely. Giving and receiving freely without an attachment to an outcome. Isn't that what we do as kids when we're like four and five until we start to like get, you know, territorial or bossy or worried? We start getting imprinted. We give and receive freely. Like, okay, you be the doctor today and I'll be the patient. Or you be the fireman and I'll be the cat in the tree. We're giving and receiving freely. We're not like, no, (laughs) that's fake. We can't do that. We're just playing. We can bring that feeling. We can train and bring in that feeling to meditation. Like, what would it be like to sit down and meditate with like a playful awareness? You know, no attachment to an outcome, but a commitment to show up for the practice or to repeat the mantra with playfulness and and being in the mood of discovery, or to make love with somebody I've made love with a zillion times, but actually be in discovery of them and myself in a spirit of play rather than some sort of paint by numbers sex, you know, (laughs) first we do this, then we do this, then we do this. Are we done yet? What's for dinner? (laughs) It gets old, doesn't it? You know, we can be caught in an argument with our beloved, our spouse, our partner or whatever. Let's catch ourselves and, and somebody can call, okay, stage pose. And everybody has to freeze into like a goofy pose. And you just agree to do it no matter what. I know couples that have this kind of an agreement. They don't get stuck. They start giggling and start realizing, oh my God, my ego was totally making stuff up about you and me. And I got agitated and now I see it. Okay. Well, oh, it's the name of the game, eh? Just breaking the the, the pattern, you know, and, and kind of yeah. shifting into another place. Yeah, aggression is overrated. Totally. <laughs> Highly overrated and costly. Totally. One other thing that caught my ear as you were speaking, you know, like you and I obviously are connecting through technology and everyone's getting to listen through technology and, and you know, our screens and our devices are incredible and and service in so many ways. What are your thoughts on navigating this world today, you know, for most of us living in big cities and faced with some of the the obstacles or challenges, this kind of bittersweet relationship that seems to be there with our technology. Any any suggestions for for living this life? Yeah. Meditate. Work with the breath. Learn how to soothe the nervous system at will through breathing and just softening the body like you're opening fists with your mind. This is what I do all day long, you know? And I have to know myself well enough. I mean, I've been practicing and teaching for decades. And 
I still know myself well enough to know when to jump off my news feed. And I'm talking about the, the news of the world from the major outlets, Guardian, CNN, whatever. I glance at it, but I have to know myself to know I'm getting pulled into a constructed narrative that's designed sometimes to have me be worried and agitated. So I can just look out my window and look at the leaves on the tree. I can look over at the hummingbird nest where this mama hummingbird has been keeping the eggs warm. And I can take perspective on that. Like, do I, do I need to let my entire nervous system be hijacked by what's happening in some part of the world where there's terrible things happening? And there's a lot of places where terrible things are happening and humans are being murdered or not taken care of. But how do I serve the world by contracting with it? Do I? Like, does me being wildly upset help the situation at all or contribute to it? So how do I find that balance between empathy and compassion and living my life where my feet physically are? Absolutely. And this is a big question that seekers have been dealing with. I've been dealing with for centuries. Like, how do I show up as a responsible citizen who cares and who can feel in a skillful way? And I've realized for me, at least, and it may be different for you as a listener, that my greatest contribution to the world is my inner state. We've all seen somebody or met somebody or hugged somebody who was, their face was physically smiling, but they were exuding tension and melodrama. And I've been around people who their face wasn't smiling. It was just placid, quiet but they were exuding the most profound love that infected me on approach. So for me, my inner state is my greatest offering in it. And so am I doing things that build my attunement with love, real love and trust and intuition or taking me away from it in my ordinary moments? And am I willing to course correct along the way? And what do I need to put in my day as formal practices that build those capacities in me more strongly? Yeah. I could talk to you all day, Scott. I'm absolutely loving this and so appreciative of your time. I wonder if we don't finish with a question that invites you into memory of your first spiritual experience, your first experience of there being something other than maybe just the matter and the mind. Do you have one that stands out? Yeah. Well, the first ones started when I was in the single digits as a little boy because I could hear inside of people. I could hear their thoughts and I could feel their body sensations. If somebody said to me, X, Y, Z hurts in my body. And if I looked at them and got quiet for a second, I would see in my mind's eye little points light up. And as I got a little older, I, I, I asked, can I, can I push on these places? And they wouldn't necessarily be the pain point. They'd be some other place. And then it would help them. And I remember going to my first ever acupuncture appointment in college and looking at a chart on the wall of the acupuncture points and the lines they were on. And I almost literally passed out because I realized I'd been seeing it my whole life. Now for the way I see, it's not like flashes of light. Everyone's different. But that's one. And I've had so many, just so many, including just ordinary moments where I really needed something, had no idea how or if it could ever come to me. And somebody calls and offers it or somebody walks up and says the thing that to me is remarkable. 
Yeah, everything is so connected. And I've had some really profound ones, but sometimes I'm reluctant to talk about the really profound ones because somebody who's earlier on the path starts thinking, well, I don't have experiences like that. You know, I remember reading a book from one of the teachers in my lineage describing his journey and he, he was very visual. All of his experiences were incredibly visual and I'm not much of a visual meditator. I've had periods. So when I read it until I met one of my mentors, I was making myself wrong. Like, well, maybe, maybe I'm doing this journey wrong until she said she wasn't visual and guided me to recognize how to enter deeper meditation and have deeper experiences that didn't require me to be visual. Wow. Bless the teachers. Hey, eh? thank you, Scott, so much for being a light and for sharing all this goodness with our community. And, and of course, with the world, I'll be sure to share ways that we can all get more of you through your offerings. And again, an enormous thank you for your time. Thank you, Damien. All right, my friends. That was quite a treat, and I've got another one for you. Scott has generously offered us a 20% discount across his entire website. What this means is that if you enjoyed today's podcast, you can practice with him, whether it's learning to relax at will, going deep into breath work, meditation. Scott has a host of ways that we can spend time with him, including you know, free satsangs and all sorts of content. So enjoy this prolific teacher further if you're interested. The code that he's given us for the promotion is ARHA20, all uppercase, A-R-O-H-A-2-0. We're going to provide all this detail on our website, so arha.com, A-R-O hyphen H-A.com, and then just look for the podcast under the menu there. Um, you'll get the show notes there. You'll get this promotion code. It's good for 10 days. So if you're listening and you're interested, hop on over there. I think you'll really enjoy getting to know this prolific teacher and we'll see you on the next episode. Thank you so much for listening. As always, Aroha Nui today and every day. Have a great one.